Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Warren Harding's inauguration speech contained a counterintuitive warning. Our most dangerous tendency is to expect too much from the government, he said. In the 1920 election, Harding had been the first to employ a professional ad man. Newsreels, billboards and the innovation of telemarketing helped to raise hopes of a new dawn. The result was the first landslide of the two-party era. But as if to manage expectations, Harding immediately took a holiday. He spent Thanksgiving in Panama. There he received a curious gift. The Harding Girls Club of Chicago sent him a holiday turkey. The elaborate publicity stunt kick-started a Thanksgiving tradition. The following year, the presidential turkey made the trip to Washington in a de Havilland DH-4 mail plane. The turkey wore an aviation helmet, goggles, and a black and gold sweater, the Baltimore Sun reported. But turkeys are not well suited for flight, and the unfortunate fowl got airsick, a harbinger of the hype that blights the modern presidency. Do we still expect too much? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what happens when the presidential ideal clashes with reality? Policymaker, father figure, stand-in king, it's impossible to fulfill the multiple roles Americans expect of a modern president. The expectations surrounding Joe Biden are more modest than for his predecessors. Solid establishment picks for top cabinet positions seem to confirm his ordinariness. Where does our idea of the ideal president originate? And how might Biden match up? In this episode, we'll find out how Barack Obama dealt with high expectations, how Biden's ordinariness might be his secret weapon, and hear from a writer on the West Wing TV series about what makes a great fictional president. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, The Washington correspondent. Charlotte, John, happy Thanksgiving. What's going on your end? Happy Thanksgiving to you too, John. What is going on? I've got eight little tiny quail, each about the size of my hands, in a marinade. They're waiting to get wrapped in bacon and thrown on a smoker. In a lifetime of questionable kitchen ideas, this may be one of the worst. I'm basically making the world's least convenient chicken nuggets. They're tiny. <laughs> Listeners ought to know that by your standards, John, this is a very simple Thanksgiving meal, right? This is your kitchen ambition scaled back dramatically to, to suit the times we're in. I mean, normally you'd be doing, you would have been at this for days. 
normally it's an extravaganza with my brother and sister and I sort of egging each other on in the kitchen, but it's just me this year. There are just four of us. So it's still, I think, a suitably ambitious holiday meal, but a, a smaller one. <laughs> This is ambitious. Yeah, it's all relative. When people ask me what I'm cooking for Thanksgiving, I consider it a microaggression. Um, <laughs> no, faced with a culinary challenge, I'm making the sensible choice as a born and bred New Yorker to order delivery. There are a few things cooking in the kitchen. My husband's making bread and we're going to make um, pie later, but not dealing with the turkey ourselves. Okay, well, in this episode, we're going to stick with the holiday vibe and let our imaginations run free a bit as we discuss the fiction that surrounds the presidency. But an obvious place to start is with a big slab of non-fiction. Barack Obama's recently released memoir, all 700 pages of it. The 2008 election was a rare transformative election amid a series of 50-50 contests. Obama came to office with the biggest majority for a Democrat since 1964 and sky-high expectations. I've been talking to our Washington bureau chief, James Astell, who's reviewed Obama's book for his Lexington column. One of the remarkable qualities of Obama is his cool temperament and enormous self-belief. As things start to get trickier pretty early on in his presidency, he ponders whether he was in error to raise expectations so high. But you don't get an impression that he's sort of beating himself up about it. There's a nice moment pretty deep into his presidency where an old personal friend arrives from Chicago and kisses him, looks deeply into his face, says, you know, she's worried about him. Is he looking after himself? Because the images that she sees on TV are of a kind of wan, graying Obama weighed down by the office. And Obama says, well, you know, I guess those are the images that they use of me on TV. But I never felt like that. I love the job. That was one of his talents and an ability to just relish the heavy burden of responsibility that he'd landed himself with. I mean, it's part of the whole way this cycle works that our expectations of candidates almost necessarily get built up to a ludicrous degree. And then when you have somebody who's as talented a politician and a speaker as Obama, that that's increased even more, particularly given the you know, historic weight of his candidacy. By and large, most elections are verdicts on the incumbent or on the incumbent's record in the case of George W. Bush to Obama. And yet the successful incoming president always takes the electoral verdict as a mandate for his programme, when it may very well not have been. And I think we can argue that it, in this case, it perhaps wasn't. The fact that Obama was this incredible novelty meant that he had to raise expectations, partly just to snare the, the candidacy. And then as he went into the general election campaign as a result of that. What do you make of the critique of him that did the rounds at the time? I mean, I was, I was in Washington for the tail end of his presidency. And one of the things you'd hear from his political opponents was, well, he, you know, he can't get things through Congress because he's no good at schmoozing. You know, he doesn't do enough evenings with senators, getting to know them and getting to know their families and working out how he can persuade them and win them over. He doesn't have any time for that criticism himself. He thinks that partisanship was just too great an obstacle. Is he right about that? Or do you think those critics of the, of the time were right? Quite a lot of his energies in the book are about addressing and refuting that critique. And I think he does so pretty successfully. Yes, I'm sympathetic to the idea that he returns to and again and again and again, that a little bit more bourbon drinking or at least some bourbon drinking with Mitch McConnell wouldn't really have, have made any difference to the Republican reception to him and his, uh, his agenda. Obama did quite a lot 
by comparison with the Trump administration, the four years of Trump that we've just been through, where they basically passed a tax cut and not much else. Then again, Obama came in with a fat majority in the House and 60 votes in the Senate. So I think it is possible to believe that had he been more gung-ho in that first year or two, maybe he would have got more done. Charlotte, I haven't finished the book yet, but I'm really enjoying it so far. And I think part of the pleasure of it is being swept up, at least in the early part, in that 2008 campaign, which you covered. Partly, it's Barack Obama and his amazing life story and his soaring rhetoric. It's also John McCain with his heroic backstory. You know, there was this real sense that the 2008 election, even though there were some really difficult things going on in America at the time, there was a feeling that that election somehow showcased the best of America's political system. You were in Chicago then, which was Obama HQ. Did you feel swept away by the whole thing at the time as you were covering it? There was a huge amount of enthusiasm, definitely in Chicago, for this hometown boy to have defeated Hillary Clinton in the primary, which people didn't think he was going to do initially. And then across the Midwest, I mean, the Midwest, Iowa, which was the first primary in the first state where he won, there was this kind of electric feeling. Oprah went to Des Moines and had this huge rally that I attended where she was saying he's the one. And that feeling did permeate the Democratic Party and also Chicago. His headquarters was in this beautiful Mies van der Rohe building near the Chicago River that was not too far from my office. And there was also Chicago happened to be bidding for the Olympics around the same time. There was just this really sort of excited sense about him in the city. And that night in Grant Park, which was unseasonably warm when Obama won, and this outpouring into the streets after his speech, and there was a mother from the South Side who was there with her daughter, an African-American woman who wanted to be there to witness this historic election, and she and her daughter just sort of hugged, weeping each other. There was this real sense of the future in an optimistic way. And I think that Barack Obama's presidency to many was, I think, a disappointment to others. You know, they would place no fault on him because he was constrained by the Senate. You know, there are lots of different ways to view his accomplishments and lack of them. But it did feel like a very, very different time, at least within the Democratic Party. And you think about the expectations now for a Biden administration, and it's kind of, you know, let's hope that America doesn't fall apart. The bar has been lowered by quite a long way. And maybe that's not a bad thing in some senses. John Fatsman, so Barack Obama comes in with all this expectation that Charlotte's described. And then immediately, there are these really deep crises that the administration has to deal with. And you've got two very large wars underway with thousands of American troops overseas, two wars which are not going well, and which the American public are tired of, and yet America can't extricate itself from. You've got the financial crisis, which is an incredibly tricky problem to solve. You've got the bankruptcy of big Detroit car firms. I mean, these things just keep coming at the new administration. It's it's pretty overwhelming when you read about it in, in Obama's memoirs. It is. He really had a rough beginning to his presidency. He was thrown right into the fire, as Joe Biden will be this time, right, entering office with the, with the pandemic and and an economic crisis. I'm, I'm about halfway through Obama's book, and there are a couple of things that really strike me about it. The first is his just like 
is, is, is his superhuman reasonableness, right? Everything he does, he explains why he did it. He explains the counterarguments. He gives the counterarguments in their best possible way. And I think it, that reasonableness is what really sort of put Republicans off, right? That's why he became, in the Republican mind, this Kenyan Marxist Muslim radical. Because if you're going to adopt a wholesale strategy of blocking and obstruction, then you got to make your opponent a bad guy. And Obama just clearly wasn't a bad guy. If you're going to obstruct and block a reasonable person, that's bad. Whereas if you're going to obstruct and block a foreign threat, well, that makes it easier to sell. The other thing that strikes me about this book is just its, its profound patriotism and understanding of democracy as a process and America, not really as so much as a country, which it is, but as a set of ideals that are always becoming and always changing. And that really asks a lot of people, right? It asks them to be active participants in a democracy. That's harder than just affirming a belief in American greatness. But I think he really understood what this country is about and, and expresses that very well, very thoroughly. As he said, in no other country is a story like mine possible. He really did believe that. And it's right. You know, I think that um, one of the interesting things about the Trump presidency and the the post-Obama years is that I agree with with what you said, John. And I think particularly as a journalist, you know, we're a particular group of people that so value Obama's set of skills, which are explaining things excellently, seeing the nuance, you know, understanding the gray areas. The way that he thinks is very appealing to a journalist. But in terms of, you know, his definition of America and what America is, I think he exposed and understood the aspirations for what America can be, but also revealed the reality, the a bit of the uglier reality of what America is, because, of course, Donald Trump's political career was founded in part on, on birtherism, this questioning of Obama's origin. And I do think, though, that there, there were some substantive policy distinctions that, you know, it wasn't just about trying to portray Obama as evil. You know, there were a lot of people who really didn't like the idea of the government setting rules for what healthcare insurance should and shouldn't cover. There was a feeling with some elements of the stimulus that this was government overreach, that the government shouldn't be involved in a heavy-handed way in trying to, for instance, promote renewable power over fossil fuels, as Obama did, similarly with the way that he tried to tackle climate change through using regulatory power, largely because he was blocked by uh, Senate Republicans. You know, those were substantive policy differences that were illuminated during his administration. So I think, you know, he's an in- his presidency was very interesting because it, 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 it did underline some of the very long and rich ideals for how America can work, how America can continue striving to be something better, while also revealing, you know, some cultural ugliness. And then there were some policy distinctions that I don't think we should forget about that continue, you know, to run through the differences between Democrats and Republicans now. Thanks both. We'll discuss expectations around Joe Biden's presidency in just a moment. But first, a reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, you're missing out. Subscribing is simple. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash 2020 election pod. Our science section this week has the lowdown on the Oxford coronavirus vaccine. There's a fascinating graphic comparing lockdown compliance around the world. And in business, we look at the demise of that other great holiday tradition, Black Friday retail. That link again, economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the notes for this episode. 
Joe Biden has spent the week rolling out his nominees for the top jobs in his administration. They exude experience and dependability. A familiar figure with a narrower mandate than Obama's, could Biden benefit from relatively low expectations? Lane Green writes the Johnson column for The Economist. It's a column about language, and his piece this week is on Joe Biden's speech. Joe Biden has been in public life since the mid-1970s, but he's not someone whose language is very easy to get a bead on. Uh, unlike other politicians who have very famous celebrity impersonators, for example, Joe Biden has uh, no quirks of his speech that are really easy to exaggerate in the way that a comedian would do to make it obvious that they're doing an impersonation of Joe Biden. It's a very low-key kind of political register. So if you had to pinpoint Bidenisms, a lot of people point to things like the word malarkey, which is something he likes to say when he thinks someone is talking nonsense, or uh, he likes to begin comments with... Look, here's the deal. We want to talk about families and ethics. Here's the deal is a kind of let's cut the malarkey, if you like. He likes addressing people as folks, and that kind of puts him on their level. It is itself a very folksy way to introduce a statement. We can do this! In his debate with Donald Trump, who constantly interrupted him, it was hard for him to get a word in edgewise. But when he did, about the most memorable thing he said was, Keep yapping, man. The people understand you. Keep yapping, man, to the president. Or, who shut is up, your, man. Listen, who is on your Will list? Will you shut up at another point? So it's very plain spoken without really calling lots of attention to itself. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. It is true that Joe Biden is known for gaffes. I do think that these are a little bit overstated. If anybody was followed around with everything they said, uh, recorded by a camera at all times, all of us would have a highlight reel of gaffes for the ages. But he, for example, said when he was running against Barack Obama in 2008, he gave him one of those backhanded compliments by calling him articulate and bright and clean. And this year on Super Tuesday, which revived his campaign, he seemed to confuse the women in his life in his victory speech. They don't call Super Tuesday for nothing. By the way, this is my little sister, Valerie, and I'm Jill's husband. Oh, no, this guy. Oh, you switched on me. This is my wife. This is my sister. But I think Joe Biden's very ordinary way of speaking might actually turn out to be a kind of surprise secret weapon. Thank you. If you compare him to Barack Obama, Mr. Obama, of course, was sort of very rhetorically gifted. He was known for hugely inspiring speeches and really a, a common touch as well. So he could both give a great interview and stand up in a lecture in front of 100,000 people and really blow it out. This was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal. This was the moment when we ended the war and secured our nation and restored our image as the last best hope on Earth. Nobody could have fulfilled all those expectations, and so I think a lot of voters were disappointed at the end of eight years of Obama. Mm -hmm. 
the man they chose after that was kind of an anti-Obama, someone who sounded as unlike a traditional political orator as you could find. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. Donald Trump really almost never gave a speech. He gets up in front of a microphone and he talks. He doesn't speak, he just talks off the cuff. He almost never used a teleprompter and he would go on these long rambles, which his critics really derided, but which were extraordinarily effective for him because his audience, especially his live audiences, just lapped them up. And we're building a wall in Colorado. We're building a beautiful wall, a big one that really works, that you can't get over, you can't get under. Someone who was good at TV and getting things remembered, he came up with memorable slogans, make America great again, build the wall, lock her up. But he didn't build the wall, at least not very much of it. He didn't lock Hillary Clinton up. And most people, many people at least, uh, and more than half the voters, feel he didn't exactly make America great again. So he too raised expectations very high and I think he disappointed quite a lot of people. Hey, what's your name? Oh, and this is my son, Braden. Hey, Braden, how are you, man? For Joe Biden, growing up and being able to speak fluidly at all was something of an achievement. He grew up with a stutter, which he overcame in his young adulthood. And in one of the most moving moments of the campaign, he met a young boy who also stuttered. Oh, man, come on. I tell you what, don't let it define you. You are smart as hell. You can do that. Can I get a phone number for you and I can tell you how what I used to do? Don't let it define you. And you know when I say I know about bullies, you know about bullies. The kids who make fun, it's going to change, honey. I promise you. I promise you. Is it if I call him dad? No, I mean for real. Is it okay? And that young boy spoke himself to the Democratic National Convention this summer that nominated Biden. And now I'm here talking to you today. about the future, about our future. My family often says when the world feels I have no doubt that after being in the scrutiny of the presidency for years, all those comedians will sharpen their Biden impersonations. He's going to say lots of things that are going to come off the wrong way. He's already a bit gaff prone and he's under great pressure as president. But I think that that may be no bad thing after some extraordinary years with two very different presidents and their very different, extremely notable rhetorical styles sort of ordinariness of Joe Biden might actually turn out to be a great strength. Vote now. Make sure you, in fact, let people know. I think a lot of Americans really are looking for a president that, even though he may say the wrong thing once in a while or get tongue-tied, really does sound like one of them. Will you shut Who is up, man? Listen? John, as Lane mentioned there, Americans quite often seem to elect an antidote to the previous president. So in some senses, Barack Obama was the opposite of George W. Bush. Donald Trump was the opposite of Barack Obama. Joe Biden seems in some senses the opposite of Donald Trump. What do you make of the idea that Biden's relative, at least to Obama, lack of talent 
in public speaking actually could be an asset because expectations of him are not so high. The people who voted for Joe Biden are relieved to have Donald Trump gone, but they're not necessarily super excited about Biden in the way they were excited about Obama or in the way that Donald Trump's fans were excited about him. Yeah, I think it's not just his occasional bouts of disfluency. It's the whole premise of his campaign, which is that I am a dull, ordinary president who will make government work. You won't have to think about me all the time. I'm not going to be making policy by tweet. Um, in the process of reporting a piece for you this week, I talked to a man who had spent decades working in various sort of corners of the of the intelligence community. We were talking about intelligence and also about Biden's cabinet choices. And he said very excitedly, as someone only in Washington could say, this is a great day for interagency processes. <laughs> so what he meant by that is that in general, a president will decide he wants to draw down the troop levels in Afghanistan. The National Security Advisor will then task out that request to all the different agencies, right? And state will say, well, great, we need X number of troops to protect our embassy here. Defense will say we need X number of troops for counterterrorism operations and so on. And through that process, you arrive at the right number of troops to draw down, the right size of the drawdown. And that process is a grind. It's annoying. It's just meeting after meeting. You're going to make a lot of people mad, right? At the end of that process, ideally, everybody is a little bit dissatisfied, but it ensures a good outcome. What you had with the Trump presidency is Donald Trump saying, we're going to have 2,500 troops in Afghanistan by the time I'm gone. And then every agency scrambling to figure out how to possibly make that work. Government should work in this sort of grinding, dull, unspectacular kind of way. Joe Biden's cabinet is full of people who will do that, just like Joe Biden himself is not an extraordinary president. He's a very ordinary guy. That's part of his appeal. I think I may be the one American who has weirdly high expectations for this presidency because there's been so much attention over the past four years, and, and in some ways before that, but really over the past four years, to this kind of tribalism in American politics and demonization of the other side, of immigrants, of the Washington swamp, of dangerous inner cities and those who live there. And then on the other side, this deep distrust of Trump supporters, um, who Hillary Clinton famously called deplorables, um, which is a badge some Trump voters wore with pride. And I think that, you know, that tribalism in politics is a problem in itself, as we write about in this week's issue. But it is born from an underlying problem. It, you know, tribalism is a problem itself, but the deeper problem is a dissatisfaction. It's a symptom of a dissatisfaction about the way things are. And the way that you improve American life and the way things are is through that really wonky, deliberate focus on trying to get government and institutions to work better. And that's, as you say, John, it's dull, it's hard work. It doesn't really make actually good cable news but you know, thinking about improving education, thinking about um, how to promote social mobility, how to improve the health of American individuals and American enterprise, that's hard, complex work. And my hope is that the low expectations, you know, the, the idea that we don't need to have politics just be about sweeping rhetoric or just be about demonization of the other side, that it gets back to kind of the wonky business of making a government work better. I'm kind of optimistic about this phase of American politics. I'm sure I'll be disappointed um, by March. But, you know, I, I do think that we're 
hopefully returning to something that feels a bit more pragmatic. And then we'll actually deal with some of the underlying problems that have been the root of this real ugliness in American politics. Max Weber said that politics is the slow boring of hard boards. And I feel like a lot of Americans and a lot of people who wish America well, quite looking forward to some of that kind of boring happening over the next few months. I've been really impressed by Joe Biden's cabinet picks so far. How about you guys? Yeah, the ones who get the best reviews from people I've been talking to this week are uh, Avril Haines, who's the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, uh, and Alejandro Mayorkas, who's going to be the Homeland Security Secretary. I had a long conversation with Tony Blinken several months ago when I was doing the the Biden cover and found him just extraordinarily knowledgeable, almost like a West Wing character. He's a francophone, he's a guitar player, he's in a band, he's very colorful, he's very, very sort of down to earth and funny. And he has a really tough task ahead of him. Yeah, lots of us were delighted to discover that Tony Blinken's band name on Spotify is Abe Lincoln, which is really pleasing. To get a <laughs> to get a political historical pun into your band title, just uh, I, I think you know. Yeah, I think some. I mean, there's some been some criticism of his picks as being a bit of a Back to the Future type cabinet. Obama's foreign policy probably wasn't his strong suit. But then, you know, I think that it's interesting. Blinken himself within the Obama administration was really on the hawkish side. He favored going into Iraq and Libya. He had this line, superpowers don't bluff. Obama had had drawn a red line about chemical weapons being used in Syria and whether he would intervene, which he didn't. So he's kind of interesting in that obviously he was a very big figure within Barack Obama's foreign policy, but but I think he will chart his own path during a Biden presidency. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of other names we could mention as well. Having Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary just sounds great. Jake Sullivan as National Security Advisor is terrifically smart and experienced. And, you know, it does look like a very impressive team. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a bit to hear from a writer of The West Wing about what makes a great fictional president. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When thinking about what makes an ideal president, it's hard to separate historical reality from the more familiar fictional portraits of the commander-in-chief. Probably the most detailed of these came in NBC's The West Wing. Fasman, you've been talking to a writer on the show. I have, and just to refresh our listeners' memories, The West Wing was uh, a show created by Aaron Sorkin that ran for seven seasons on NBC. It started in 1999, so the very end of the Clinton presidency. And it starred Martin Sheen as President Jed Bartlett, who was idealistic, centrist, moderate. He had uh, multiple sclerosis, which became important as the show went on. I spoke to Michael Oates Palmer, who is a screenwriter and producer and has been a friend of mine for going on 30 years now. And he told me how the writers on the show came to their vision of the presidency. Martin Sheen's character was modeled less on a particular 
president so much as they were developing that show at the end of the Clinton years. The pitch was sold sometime midway through the second term, thus kind of the height of impeachment, the Lewinsky scandal, and all the rest of it. It was finding someone who was an idealized version, having all of the positive qualities that Bill Clinton brought to the table without the qualities that landed him into the scandals and controversies of his presidency. So he's sort of a Bill Clinton with the rough edges sanded off, an idealized version of Bill Clinton. I think in the sense that Bartlett was a very smart guy, wonky guy. Aaron himself would be the first to say he was not a political obsessive. So even though I could go back and pinpoint how, oh, there were these qualities of Gary Hart's campaign in 84, or this seemed to be inspired by Paul Songus or whatever, whatever else. I mean, remember, in the pilot episode of The West Wing, Bartlett is barely in the episode. They were not planning on Martin Sheen to be a series regular of the show. So it started off as a show about behind the scenes of the White House, and it became a show about a president. What are the ideal characteristics for a fictional president? What do people want out of a fictional president? And, and how does it differ from what you'd want in an actual president? The problem is, is that while we might say we want a president who is flawless and a great human being and never screws up, that doesn't make for very good drama. Going all the way back to Aristotle, you need to see a character going through obstacles that are keeping them from reaching their intentions. You need to see characters who have a quest or seeking to do something and they have to overcome great obstacles to get there. In more recent years, you certainly had shows like Shonda Rhimes' Scandal and House of Cards, an adaptation uh, and an updating of a British miniseries from the 80s, both Scandal and House of Cards went to real soap opera extremes. There was no attempt to be realistic. Whereas I think with West Wing, it was never going to feel like watching C-SPAN. But one of the things that I really respected about Aaron Sorkin was that he really had the view that if you build it, they will come. He believed if you did something smart and intelligent, there was going to be an audience for that and people wanting that. And what he also thought was, it didn't matter if some of the audience didn't understand what a storyline involving Josh Lyman and his assistant Donna was about, so much as they liked Josh and Donna and wanted to see them succeed in whatever they were trying to do that episode. Would a series like West Wing you know, a major network production featuring an unapologetically liberal white guy as president. Would that even be possible now in an age of hyperpartisanship? Would would networks be too afraid of offending conservatives? Would liberal writers want to push the character sort of further left than he was? Could you make a West Wing now? I think when people get so much of politics in their day-to-day life, sometimes what we're looking for in our culture is an antidote to what we actually are experiencing in real life. After 9-11, 
I don't think it was a coincidence that what became the most popular TV shows in America were procedurals. We suddenly had all of those CSI shows. We had more law and orders than you could count. And I think that's because after the emotional trauma we as a country experienced from 9-11, we had a satisfaction from watching 42-minute shows where at the end of the episode, we knew that they would get the bad guys. It was giving us something that we weren't getting in our day-to-day lives. It's more likely to me that you could see a political show that's not set in the world of politics. It's not like people are sitting there saying, I really want to see more of Donald Trump. Charlotte, there's a pretty clear reason why there haven't been a lot of great fictional presidents during the Donald Trump presidency. Whatever the screenwriters could come up with, it couldn't compete with what's on cable news every night. But I'm struck generally by how few contemporary portrayals of the presidency that have really been good and have been hits in popular culture there have been since The West Wing, which of course was a great show. Why do you think there's so few really good movies or TV series about the presidency? Um, I mean, I just think, you know, the West Wing did what the West Wing did so well. It was a liberal fantasy of White House politics. And so I think it makes sense that you would then swing to a more sardonic view of politics with House of Cards or a more ridiculously scandalous one like the the Shonda Rhimes show scandal. And I think the point also is just people are were a bit strung out about politics. And there's a reason why the Great British Bake Show's become popular in America. The thing you want to watch is someone stressing about whether their raisins have sunk to the bottom of their fruit bread and not about um, whether we might go to war with North Korea. I mean, in fairness, I find baking extremely stressful. And I, I, <laughs> I, I, will, watch, I will watch Veep as a relief while I'm baking. Um, <laughs> I think that one implicit question from that conversation with Mike is what makes a good president, fictional or not? What do we want out of our presidents? And I think we at The Economist tend to be quite policy-heavy and uh, and and think of voters as as rational, but voters are not always that rational. And I think that what people look for in a president, the reason people vote for a president, isn't really the policies they ex- they espouse. It's the way they make them feel, and then the policy preferences are retrofitted to that. I think if you did a Venn diagram of West Wing fans and Obama voters, it would it would look like a single circle, right? Because Bartlett and Obama both sort of espouse a similar sort of belief in 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 democracy, a similar reasonableness, a similar willingness to take their opponents seriously. What Donald Trump espoused was a willingness to fight the people that his voters wanted them to fight. I saw a survey this week found that what Trump voters liked most about Trump was his pugnacity. What Biden offers is a relief from that. He offers a sort of he offers an outstretched hand to Republicans, a belief that we can all come together and talk reasonably. And so what people want out of their president may change over time. I think right now what people seem to want from Biden is a bit of a respite from politics. One thing that I think is a really interesting question after Donald Trump leaves is what makes an ideal former president, right? So Jimmy Carter is in some ways the best, one of the best examples of this. He was a mediocre president, but he's really done a lot as a former president with his foundation trying to eradicate 
deadly diseases in poor countries. He has this whole campaign about getting rid of guinea worm. George W. Bush is someone who looks better and better in, in retrospect. You know, he wasn't a great president, but he has clear deference for the office as a former president. He does lovely portraits of veterans and immigrants. He and Michelle Obama are pals. Bill Clinton, you know, he's someone who wasn't really content to leave the spotlight. He had the Clinton Foundation. And then when I saw him speak at the Democratic National Convention this year, I kind of had this feeling like this is a party that's over. It's a party that likes to say it believes claims of sexual harassment by women. And you still have Bill Clinton speaking at primetime during the DNC. Is he going to be speaking there forever? He's obviously a hugely skilled politician, but it does feel a bit to me like it's time for Democrats to move on from giving him such a prominent platform. But with Donald Trump, it's just totally new uh, new ground because as a former president, one, it's not clear that he'll ever really acknowledge that he lost. Uh, the most likely path for him seems to be being part of a, a media empire. So it's not like he's going to go quietly and, and sit on his hands and just work on developing the next vintage of Trump wine. Um, and, you know, he may well, or someone from his family may well run in 2024. So I think he's going to be a former president, an ex-president that is unlike any ex-president we've had before. As part of my meticulous preparation for this podcast, I spent some time on YouTube watching all the appearances Donald Trump made in movies and TV series before he became president. And there are a great many of them, from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air to Zoolander. And it's easy to forget, having just experienced his presidency, quite what a sort of national treasure in some senses he was before he became president. You know, Donald Trump would turn up in a show and the audience would all applaud and laugh and clap. And a lot of the jokes seemed to revolve at the time around him eventually becoming president, which seemed like such a ridiculous notion. And I know it seems really hard to imagine it at the moment because the past four years have been so bitter and so divisive and because many of the things Donald Trump has done as president have been so bad. But I wonder if there's a possibility you might see him cropping up yet again in those sorts of shows, you know, regaining something of that status as a kind of figure of fun. So long as the electorate can be fairly sure that he's not going to run again in 2024 or 2028 or or whenever. I don't know. I think that it's hard for someone to be um, a national treasure and just be grumpy the whole time about being a sore loser. It's not that good a look. I don't think you're going to have him appearing on whatever the modern equivalent is of Fresh Prince anytime soon, but who knows, I may be proven wrong. Okay, before I let you guys go back to your stoves and continue preparing Thanksgiving food, we've got a quiz. This one comes from 1843, not the year, but the lifestyle magazine that now comes part of your Economist subscription. The latest issue has a great piece on ex-presidents. Who was the first former president to fix his financial problems by flogging a memoir after leaving office? Grant! Grant. Oh, ah! that, I was so... I knew that one. <laughs> uh, you both interrupted me before I finished the question. With the help of Mark Twain, you're both correct. It was Ulysses S. Grant. I know, but Fasman beat me and he gets a point. Just by a whisker. It's uh, Thanksgiving, Charlotte. You get a point two. That was so generous. The Civil War hero got $1,000 for signing a book deal, plus 70% of royalties and living expenses. Grant was broke after his son traded on the family name in an investment scam. 
Which ex-president cut loose on a hunting safari by slaughtering 29 zebra, 17 lions... Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt, Teddy. Gotta be, right? 11 elephants, 9 giraffes, a couple of porcupines, a pair of bongos, and a lone aardwolf. And that is not the menu for John Fasman's Thanksgiving dinner. It was indeed Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) Well done, guys. Both of you get points. I love the inclusion of porcupines in that. They're all big game, and then you can just see him sort of bored as he was riding from one elephant to the next. It's like, might as well kill that one. What was the last thing you said? An aardwolf? What is that? An aardwolf. I was perplexed by the pair of bongos more than the aardwolf. I don't know what either of those animals are. I have to look up an aard... I also feel like there's something being lost in it with the English accent. How do you spell it? Aardwolf? Double uh, A-R-D and then wolf, like wolf. Huh. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a mini wolf that eats insects. And they hang out in East Africa and Southern Africa. Did you say that this animal looks sweet? I just looked it up. It's like the mangiest looking creature I've ever seen. <laughs> I think I think Teddy should have killed more of them, frankly. It's like a hyena that went even further wrong. Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. Thanks, John. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Thank you. That piece on the exploits of ex-presidents is available to Economist subscribers right now. We'll put the link in the episode notes. You can get in touch on email. The address is radio at economist.com. Nigella Lawson, the TV chef, talks to Anne McElvoy on the Economist Asks podcast this week if you're after further Thanksgiving indulgence. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.